passage today is Acts chapter 2, starting with verse 40. We're going to read through verse 47. So I encourage you to turn there with me. Last week we discussed Peter's gospel presentation in the streets of Jerusalem. We saw how 3,000 people were added to the church that day. So let's see what happened next. If you would stand, Acts chapter 2, verses 40 through 47. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day, 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the opportunity to read, to study, to hear, Father, ultimately to be changed by your spirit, by your word. So I pray that we would be receptive this morning. Help us to hear with ears that would hear, minds that would understand, and feet that would act. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. In this passage, we have the phrase, to their number, at the end of verse 47, which in the New King James is translated to the church, because it is translating the Greek word ekklesia, which literally means called out ones. And so God was adding converts to the church daily, and these were collectively called out. But what were they called out from? They were called out. The Bible says from the world, from death in sin, and then from captivity to Satan. So what we have is the church is this congregation of people that are separated from these things, commissioned to be a living, shining example to the lost world. And interestingly, the term ecclesia or church, not a new term to the people in Jesus' day. They would have read it many times as they read the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In the Septuagint, ecclesia is used to translate the Hebrew phrase kahal, which is usually translated actually in your Old Testament as congregation. And it's not, not the intent necessarily to give you a language lesson this morning, but I do want you to understand at least this point. When Luke uses the word church in his book, Acts, he intentionally, through the Holy Spirit, is creating a parallel with the congregation of Israel, a community that God also called out, which was called out from Egypt and the rest of the world to be a holy nation. And the further point is this, the church in an important sense is the new Israel, just as Israel in the Old Testament was the old church. And when God called the Israelites to be a nation set apart from the other nations, they weren't just released from bondage to go about their lives however they saw fit. Redemption was not about cutting the chains and saying, there, 
You're free. Now go lead a good life and remember what I did for you. That's not what salvation is about. The book of Exodus tells us many times that God redeemed the Israelites so that they might worship him. For example, in Exodus 7, verse 16, God tells Moses to say to the Pharaoh, and you shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you saying, let my people go so that they'll go out and do their own thing and remember me. No, it doesn't say that. So that they may serve me in the wilderness. God speaks like this many other times in Exodus, describing Israel as a son whose purpose is to worship him. Most important, once the people were released, they were actually instructed to go someplace. They were instructed to go to Mount Sinai where God would reveal himself to them. And even though the people had a relationship with God as individuals, had a relationship with him as, as family and household units, there was still something important about the corporate gathering of the congregation, of these called out ones. And as the church, we are exactly that, a congregation of those who have been called out from death, the world, and yes, you and me, we have individual relationships with God, those are wonderful relationships with the Lord, our families, but that's not all. The Bible indicates that from these relationships, but also transcending, making something even a, a, a sum that is greater than all the individual parts, that there is this, this entity called the body of Christ. And it's more than just, you know, however many people we have here today. We've been called out for the purpose of gathering together for something. And that is to gather weekly at the mountain. And that is why the book of Hebrews, for example, commands us to regularly gather for worship. I don't know if you've thought much about why God wants you to gather together. It's not just so that there will be a church or that you know, we can have something, enough people here to do something like we hear each other's voices or we listen to the word together and are encouraged. There's more to it than that. Something important happens at the mountain of God. What happened at Mount Sinai? Exodus 19 describes how the Israelites finally arrive at the base of Mount Sinai. For days they have been traveling away from Egypt with the anticipation of meeting with God. And then in verse 10 and following we read, The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people, consecrate them today, consecrate them tomorrow, let them wash their garments, be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of the people, and all shall set limits. You shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up on the mountain or to touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. And when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. And we see how sobering and serious this moment is. Even though the people had looked forward to this meeting with God with anticipation, even though there had been great celebration, remember it was just a few days before that there had been singing and dancing, right? With Miriam, for example, after the crossing of the Red Sea. Here, this is not a casual manner. God is holy. And his people were to consecrate themselves and make themselves ready. In fact, they were not even to touch the mountain or they would die. And that attitude of reverence doesn't end with the Exodus 
just in case we're tempted to think of Mount Sinai as this one-time event. For example, the same reverence is mentioned in a familiar passage. I quote it often from Ecclesiastes 5. Solomon writes, Guard your steps when you go to the house of the Lord. Draw near to listen. And to do that is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Don't be rash with your mouth. Don't let your heart be hasty. To utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. Solomon speaking of the, the house of, of God, which in his day was the tabernacle and later the temple. By extension, the house of God is any place where God's people gather in his presence to worship. It would be for this purposes, Central Valley Presbyterian Church. And Solomon tells us that we are to come prudently to church. We are we're to come expecting to hear and listen, to not be rash with our mouths, not to speak hasty or, or meaningless words. And I would equate that with not thinking that what we do here is common or casual, but to have the attitude that we are going to the mountain. And God is thundering from the top. Whether it be thundering through the preaching of the word, I hope, or the thundering through the reading of and speaking of and singing of God's word and scripture and song, God is speaking to you, his people. And we are to come with prudence and reverence because God's word accomplishes its purpose. It will either accomplish blessing through change and conforming your life to his ways, or it will accomplish judgment. It, it does not go out and return void. Now, I think sometimes when we read these eight verses at the end of Acts chapter 2, I don't know about you, but it sounds like a cozy potluck. At least it's what it sounds like if you don't have the context that we've been talking about in the rest of the Bible. The church first meets in the temple for public prayer and, and witness of the gospel. But for the teaching and the breaking of bread, which both refers to a meal and to communion, those things that we typically associate with Sunday morning worship, those were all done in people's homes every day, meeting as a church until there were permanent locations. And what we, what we read sounds like us getting together for an evening fellowship. And we far more identify with Acts chapter 2, which we call the New Testament church, than we do with the congregation of Israel gathering out the mountain, not able to touch the mountain. We do that, but then we read verse 43 in this section, which says, and awe came upon every soul, which in the New King James is fear came upon every soul. And we go, how does, how does that equate with an evening fellowship? something that we would be missing if we just read over this like we so often do is, is kind of that casual New Testament church. Amidst joy and fellowship must be reverence and prudence and sober-mindedness, a healthy fear and awe of a holy God. It's very tempting to get the emphasis backwards and think that the church exists to hear our needs and to 
cater to our desires, but that's not why we come to gather. That's not why we are the congregation of the Lord. You are coming to hear and to listen to your God. Perhaps we have a related problem here at CVP because we are by practice a church where families worship together all all at the same time. We're tempted to put the emphasis maybe not so much on the individual and our specific needs, but maybe more on the family. But together we are the congregation. All together, the body of Christ, the bride of the Lamb. And so a question this morning is, have you been coming to church as an individual or as a family, but failing to come as the people of God who walk with reverence into these doors, ready to hear. It's almost as if the shofar is being blown, right? The trumpets are being heard. The incense is going up to the heavenly places, to the holy of holies. And God, who has said, consecrate yourselves, be ready to hear my word, and you've been anticipating that all week, and you come through the doors to say, we're ready. What will God say to me today? Feed me in my household. Is that what you're saying? Without regard to how you may edify the rest of the people in the body? Or are you listening for truth? I realize that one of the things that we hope will happen when we come to church is that we will receive the blessing of God through the singing and the preaching and the, the shared participation in the table, and then through fellowship with others. But don't forget, friends, that the biggest blessing of all is that you are here in the first place. God has saved you. God has triumphed over death. And he has released you from the bondage to slavery. And we are here to thank him, to acknowledge that he is king, to get our marching orders. Now some of you may feel still a bit detached from the subject. You've heard some funny sounding Greek and Hebrew terms. You've heard about people of Israel in a very unfamiliar culture meeting at Mount Sinai. You can't help but ask, what does that have to do with me? We're thousands of years, we're thousands of miles, thousands of advances separated from that other world. And American culture is vastly different from Hebrew culture, so we shouldn't expect, or should we, important differences in the style of worship and even the, the simple structure of what it means to be a church. I know a lot of people say, can't we just end the discussion with a call to be reverent? And whatever form of worship we adopt, after all, Acts 2 does sound more like a home fellowship. It seems like that was a change. It doesn't sound like people were cleansing themselves for days, preparing to hear God's voice. Well, let me ask you this. If you were able to step in, wouldn't it be great if you were, could step into the room that day, in the first days of that early church there in Jerusalem and Judea, and if you were to, to talk to some of the leaders there, the apostles, and, and we'll pretend that they understood American culture and terms, and if you were to ask them, you know, you guys are in a unique situation because you have, you've had both feet in 
in each world. You were part of the Old Testament church just a few months ago, a few years ago, whatever time it is we're talking about. You were in the Old Testament church. You're now in the New Testament church. Does it seem like you're switching denominations? Does it seem like you're switching religions? Was it, is, it, is it something else altogether? What do you think they would say? Well, hopefully at this point you wouldn't say, well, we're so glad that our formal worship has now become just a potluck Bible study. You know, hopefully you wouldn't say that, right? The Apostle Paul, he would have commented on many parallels He would have mentioned how God blessed the Israelites with his law and gave them feasts to regularly gather for worship and how he gave Israel ceremonies like Passover and circumcision to memorialize their release from bondage and the fact that they were the people of God as a chosen nation. And he would say, those all have parallels in the New Testament church. Jesus says the law is still valid today. Fact has been written upon our hearts. He'd say communion and baptism mirror the Old Testament sacraments of Passover and circumcision. So there are lots of parallels, and there are more. But he would also say there there was something missing in the Old Testament church. In fact, he says that very thing in Galatians chapter three. He says, "Before faith came, we were held captive under the law." imprisoned until the coming faith could be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. And you know this picture, Paul's painting it of a young child kept carefully under a guardian. It wasn't a bad or evil guardian, but a protective one. Children are being instructed, they're being led. For what purpose? Paul says that we might be justified by faith. So the law is our guardian was our guardian, that it might bring us to Christ. And, and he continues, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized in Christ, to Christ to put on Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And here's what he's saying. You want to know? Key difference. We were missing something in the Old Testament church. We were still in bondage. We didn't have the understanding of what true liberating freedom could be like that results from gaining a full inheritance in Christ. We were like children. We were kept under guard. We were being taught to anticipate the Messiah, but we didn't know him. We were given practices and ceremonies and feasts that helped illustrate what the freedom would be like, but there was this pervading sense that, that this was unfinished, that something big was coming. Now, Thad is celebrating a birthday, and he probably could not wait until this moment today. A lot of you children can't wait to be the next year in age. And if you say that you can wait, it's probably because you've already been saying you're a year older for a long time. Why else do we say I'm 10 and a half, right? We say it because it's frustrating to have a certain amount of privileges and to think that as we get older, we'll receive more, so we can't wait to get to that next 
point. We certainly experienced it throughout our time with our older kids, now with our younger, youngest kids. When Casey was in our home, he never cared fully for having to go to bed earlier than his brothers and his sister. It was just, he was always looking forward to having the full privileges. And Caleb has looked forward for years to having the same privileges as hope. And that's what Paul's talking about when he says in Galatians that the child who is underage, even though he's an heir, even though he knows the privileges that lay ahead of him, still he feels like a slave. He feels like something's been taken away. He's restricted, living in a shadow. And what does that full inheritance look like? It might seem simplistic, but look again at our passage, starting with verse 42. What it looks like is they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. That's what it looks like. Maybe you were expecting something different. But the full inheritance of Christ looks like that. It all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs being done through the apostles, and all who believed together had all things in common, selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, glad, generous hearts, joy, God adding to their number. That's what it looks like. How was that the fullness of what was only a shadow in the Old Testament church? Well, earlier this year we were in Romans, and in Romans 8.15, Paul writes, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption of sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You see, the Old Testament had many high points of spiritual experience, but it really had no parallel to the cry of deep-seated intimacy where that child of God no longer has to go through a prophet, no longer has to go consult a priest, but can actually stand in grace before the very throne of God and look up at God as his robe fills the temple and say, Abba, Father. Only a true adopted son has that privilege. That's an intimacy with God that was not shared previously. And that intimacy fills the heart and it overflows into a deep love and fellowship with other believers. It flows into a willingness to look past educational, cultural, lifestyle differences. It's a security that we can actually give up our things to one another because we know with gladness and a simplicity of heart that we've been given everything in Christ. That's what's happening in Acts chapter 2. That's true freedom. This isn't about an evening fellowship. This is about a kingdom in fullness. You see, I want to suggest to you that if we truly know where everyone came from, in the Old Testament church, you can't look at Acts 2 again without amazement at what God has done. How else do we explain that people who were once just concerned about themselves and their personal righteousness could come together in this deep fellowship and worship with one another and edify one another daily? How, how else do you explain that? 
incredible. And you know what else we'll see as we go through Acts, but is anticipated here in chapter 2? That this group of believers is going to expand and it's going to become Jew and Gentile. And I'm not saying at all that that was an easy transition because there were some moments that were pretty dicey. Like when Peter momentarily separates himself from the Gentiles in Antioch and Paul has to admonish him later. But Peter recognizes his sin. So there, there are these moments, this kind of stutter steps, but, but we keep moving forward. Because in the New Testament church, God unites Jew and Gentile, and again, there are anticipations of that in the Old Testament. There were parallels of that you know, for those who had their feet in both worlds. Rahab, the Gentile from Jericho, she and her family become members of Israel, even an ancestor in Jesus' family line, Ruth, the Moabitess, same, adopted into Israel. But what is a rarity in the Old Testament, kind of as a foreshadowing, becomes a regularity, a frequency, a consistency in the New Testament. And let me tell you one more thing that's not mentioned in Acts 2, but, but really represents one of the most amazing advancements of all. The New Testament church, as we see it in Acts 2, hearing teaching from the word, participating in the sacraments, worshiping God, they're doing that all without having sacrificed animals at the door. I bet that none of you, when you read Acts 2, asked at the end of the passage, well, wait a second, didn't they give a burnt offering first? Didn't they give a thank offering and a peace offering? Aren't they being presumptive? Well, that's because you're not a part of first century Jewish culture. But what we see in Acts 2, which is access to the Father through the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit, this is revolutionary. There is no priest here. There's no, there's no rabbi, at, at least in the sense of cleansing rituals. There are teachers. The New Testament church has had its sins atoned for in the perfect work of Jesus. We can't fully appreciate, I don't think, what it meant that families could say, I don't have to go and give a sin offering ever again. Or a thank offering, or a grain offering, all the other rituals of the Old Testament. And so in Acts chapter 2, we see a church breaking bread, the bread of communion that represents Christ's eternal perfect sacrifice. Friends, don't look at Acts 2 as if you're reading about a fellowship. This is huge. And Lucas summarized things for us that would have been monumentally significant for the first century Jew. Remember, you're not his original audience. His original audience had a greater understanding of these things. And so they're reading going, people from all walks of life, from different races, ethnicities, cultures, lifestyles, they're worshiping together? Yes. Incredible. Whole families participating together. They're not separated into their own different sectors and they're all participating, praying together? Yes, incredible. They're all receiving the Lord's Supper? Yes. Incredible. They're meeting daily and not thinking that it's an imposition and a burden together for worship? Yes. Incredible. 
they're delighting in the teaching. Yes. <laughs> Incredible. The wealthy are sacrificing. They're giving up their possessions to help those who are needy. Yes. Isn't it incredible what God has done? It's incredible. The church as we see it here in action is exactly what the Holy Spirit's empowering work in believers creates. And that's why this account here in these eight short verses, it follows the statement that 3,000 souls were added to their number that day. That's because these eight verses answer what happens when the Holy Spirit converts a soul. They do this. And let me add this point as well. If the Old Testament church was reverent, sober-minded, so should we. Because God has more fully revealed himself in Jesus Christ and created this amazing congregation of saved souls. We have such a greater, more advanced understanding of who God is. Would we not be that much more reverent when we meet together? So friends, you know, my encouragement to the, today to you is I hope that these maybe are, are refreshing challenges to you today. Maybe it's time to break out the Bible again and start reading about your ancestors in the faith and what it was like for them. Perhaps doing that will help you appreciate what we're doing here on Sunday mornings. And if you're struggling at all in you know, feeling that it is an imposition or a burden to be here and instead of can't wait to get off on vacation to be away from, a, from church on Sunday, maybe it'll start to become, I am not going to miss the corporate gathering of God's people because I realize what a significant thing and blessing it is to come together to be called out from the world and to experience what God is doing at, with us as the church. I know it's been said a couple times in this, this month, but it was said again by Wendy last week at Karen's memorial service. And so I know it'll be familiar to you, but, but again, maybe the context from today is, is appropriate. I will say again, the first thing that she said to me besides hello was that she was regretting the fact that she was going to miss church two days later. If she could, right, she would have gotten up out of bed, been wheeled out of that hospital, transported here to church. But here she is on the, on the verge of life-threatening surgery, and her regret is missing the corporate gathering of God's people. And we can't, like I said, sometimes wait to get away. Let's not forsake that time, this time, together. But let us come with an expectation to see God, to await his instruction, and to live as the people of God. Let's pray. Father, I do ask that you would continue to open our eyes and understanding about what it means to be your people who have been called out from the world, who have been called out to be the ecclesia, the church. Lord, I ask that as we look at these things and then think about what we do, 
Help us not as we think about sitting here and hearing your word or singing together or the fact that we are able to give of the first fruits of what you've given us so that it might be given to those who are in need or the fact that we're able to edify one another with spiritual gifts or that we're able to share food or that we're able to, in the moment to, to break bread at the table and, and eat and drink as we celebrate the fact that we never have to give a sacrifice again, that we are able to have intimacy with you, to, to cry at Abba Father, that all those things, may we never look at them the same again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.